Good morning, everyone. I'm Clark Irvin, and thank you very much for joining us today. We are so pleased to have with us two of the savviest and sagest journalists in Washington today, the dynamic duo of Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Peter is the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times, a political analyst for MSNBC, and he's also the author of three other important books beyond the one we're going to talk about today, two of which are Days of Fire and The Breach. Susan is a staff writer for The New Yorker and a global affairs analyst for CNN. Their very first assignment as a married couple was serving as co-bureau chiefs in Moscow for the Washington Post, during which time they wrote the book Kremlin Rising. Today, they're with us to talk about their latest book, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III, the legendary White House Chief of Staff, Secretary of State, and Secretary of the Treasury. With that, please join me in welcoming Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Over to you two, and thanks again for joining us today. Mark, thank you so much for the invitation. We're so thrilled to be with you guys today. We wish it were in person, but we know that's coming soon, and we're all, I think, excited about this new world opening up again where we can be physically <laughs> together. So as we do our last few uh, you know, Zoom world uh, kind of events like this, uh, you know, couldn't be more delighted than to be with St. John's. And I'll say this as a White House correspondent going back to 1996, I've been to St. John's numerous times, uh, often with presidents, and it's such an important institution in our world, in our city, in our, in our community. Uh, and so it's a real honor to be with you today. Yeah, well, that's right. And especially, uh, I have to say, Clark, it's delightful to, to be with you. Uh, you've been a great friend and, uh, and great citizen of Washington uh, over the years. So we're delighted to see you, if not yet in person. Uh, and great to spend a little bit at Sunday morning with all of you today. Uh, you know, thinking back to the fact that it's only, essentially, it's almost a year, uh, you know, since St. John's uh, made headlines, uh, you know, in not, not the right way. Uh, not to his own actions. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, we, and we were there, you know, and we, we brought our son actually to, to witness these historic protests and actually were very coincidentally there, uh, you know, on the evening right when the fire broke out. Uh, and then, uh, of course, in the aftermath of uh, the world's most notorious St. John's photo op. Uh, you know, and it will figure into our next book project, undoubtedly, because I think it was a very significant, we're going to do a book about Trump, and I do think it was a very significant uh, uh, and telling moment uh, that talked about and was really a precursor maybe of the ruptures to come uh, and, uh, you know, the uh, rupture that that led to another historic building, the Capitol, uh, uh, being the backdrop for scenes that we could not have imagined. And, you know, that might be a little bit of a sideways introduction to our talk today, but I don't think it is really. And that's where Peter and I wanted to start today, is with the question of, you know, what has Washington become? And for us, that was actually a kind of a subject uh, when we embarked upon the man who ran Washington, it was actually, it was before the Trump presidency, it was during the Obama presidency, but already I think we had a sense uh, of Washington's extreme uh, dysfunction at that time and a sense that things and institutions 
uh, and our political process no longer worked uh, in the way that we understood it to have worked for our previous decades. And, you know, that in telling the story of Jim Baker, we would also be telling the story of Washington, basically from the end of Watergate to the end of the or again, not a time that we would, you know, look back on through rose-colored glasses or, you know, say like, wow, you know, there was no partisanship because that certainly wasn't true. But Peter, I wonder if you could start us off today by talking a bit about uh, how it is that you see Washington having changed since the time of Jim Baker, because that really was, I think, one of the animating reasons why we were so you know, interested in doing this project. Yeah, yeah, I, and we often say that if Baker is the main protagonist of the story, the other main character in this book is Washington, which is why Washington gets in the title, uh, because it is a story about place and time and a moment versus today, and, and the contrasts and comparisons are instructive in a lot of ways, right? So Washington, Jim Baker, as soon as said, it wasn't like, you know, we don't wanna overstate it, you shouldn't over romanticize or, or nostalgize, uh, different eras, but it was a different moment when the parties uh, fought it out like crazy in election years, sometimes in, in nasty and maybe even underhanded ways. But then when it was over, there was at least a period when Washington could get some stuff done, right? And Baker is a great exemplar of that. He was a ruthless, you know, St. John's, uh, you know, regular attendee, uh, but there were times when he was a ruthless partisan as a campaign manager for five presidential uh, campaigns. He would uh, he would play rough like the, uh, the, the the toughest of them. But when it was over, he would then sit down with the other party to say, OK, now what can we get done on issues like Social Security and taxes and, and, and war and peace? And that's what seems so different to me about Washington. You know, it's today it was a quote actually from I think it was Speaker Pelosi saying, you know, from her the most recent biography saying, you know, there are, I'm going to make a number of 170 days until the next election. And then the next the election after that starts in 171 days. And that's the mentality on both sides of the aisle today, where an election is simply uh, a way of getting to the point where we can start fighting it out for the next election, rather than have a period where we can sit down and do things. So the greatest example we think in some ways on, on Baker that tells the contrast is the 88 election, right? The campaign between George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis was rot, was, was, was tough and, and, and as nails. Obviously, the Bush campaign used uh, patriotism and the flag and all of these different issues to impugn Dukakis' character that Willie Horton had, everybody remembers, of course, played to racial divisions and, and in some ways set the stage for some of what we would see, I think, later. Uh, and so you could say that was a terrible campaign in a lot of ways. The day it was over, it was over as far as Baker was concerned. Baker, within a month, was in the apartment of Robert Strauss, the former Democratic National Chairman, having dinner with Jim Wright, the Democratic Speaker of the House, to say, what can we do to solve the contra war in Central America that had just, just divided our parties and our, our politics for a decade at that point? And with the help of Jimmy Carter, and again, not a Republican, uh, Bush and Baker helped find a way to put an end to America's you know uh, involvement in this in this conflict in Nicaragua, bring a democratic result, at least for a time anywhere there. And that was Baker's inclination, right? Yes, you fight it out during elections. You might not even always do it on a, on a, on a level playing field, but you're gonna then sit down afterwards. That's what I think is a big difference. Now, what about, Susan, we're doing this interview back and forth thing since, you know, that's what we do. It's great. <laughs> what do you think surprised you though the most about Jim Baker? Why, why do you wanna do a book about Jim Baker, you know, beyond Washington? What about him? Is different, do you think? 
Well, look, I think it goes a little bit to your point about the difference between, uh, you know, then and today. And I should point out, it was not just some sense of noblesse oblige or something that led to a different set of outcomes, but a political and structural change in our system, too. I mean, it wasn't like Jim Baker was just a sort of uh, disinterested uh, uh, public servant. Uh, in fact, it was his keen sense of what worked in politics that enabled those deals. So I wouldn't want to misportray that. I, I do think it's important to note that the difference between then and now might be summed up as to say that the road to success in politics led through actually accomplishing something in addition to deals in their own right, which, and, and we can talk about that and, and Baker's, I think, unique uh, character and facility and just natural ability as a deal maker. One thing that I will tell you, uh, you know, that transcends time and place and moment uh, is definitely about our subject, our character. Uh, and uh, he is as close to a natural deal maker and negotiator, uh, probably as Washington has seen in recent years. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, he's, he's almost a cult-like figure, really very admired still among Democrats as well as Republicans for his ability to succeed across a remarkable array of different uh, high level jobs, right? That's part of the Jim Baker mystique is how do you become a successful White House Chief of Staff, a successful Treasury Secretary, successful Secretary of State, and also run five different national political campaigns. That's, you know, can you imagine Karl Rove and Henry Kissinger swapping jobs? Of course not. And so, you know, that I think was the thing every single person asked us, you know, well, what's the secret? What, you know, what, what's the secret to Jim Baker's remarkable success? And there it's very interesting. First of all, he, he certainly gives heart to um, uh, midlife career changes everywhere because Jim Baker, the thing that you don't really realize you sit down and you look at this remarkable chronology is uh, he didn't even come to Washington until he was in his mid forties is when he moved here. And uh, so you could certainly count this actually as like the world's most successful midlife career change. And interestingly, there was little in his first few decades of life uh, that would suggest that he would, was either qualified for or uh, would flourish in this set of roles. And, you know, he didn't uh, study theories of international relations before becoming uh, Secretary of State. I'm sure to this day at age 91, he probably could not go on more than 20 seconds about the Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, you know, he uh, did not study uh, economics or work in finance uh, to become treasury secretary. In fact, he, his qualification for the job, as he uh, was happy to say, was you know, a single undergraduate course at Princeton at which he did not do all that well. Um, and uh, you know, on and on it goes. He wasn't that interested in politics. He hadn't even been uh, a registered uh, Republican, although he's so identified with the Republican Party. Barbara Bush used to joke that uh, Jim Baker, Jimmy Baker, as, as she called him, uh, back in the days in Houston when they first met each other, that he didn't go to vote because that coincided with the opening of the hunting season, which was his true priority. And, you know, so- He, I, he denies that, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> but I, the records are, are uh, not- It's produced. a telling. Yeah. It's a telling joke. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we, we haven't seen the paperwork one way or the other. On that. Um, you know, the bottom line is that Baker, you know, came from this family of enormous privilege in, in Houston. His, his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather uh, were 
not only lawyers who built uh, Baker Boss, the law firm that at one time was the largest law firm west of the Mississippi, uh, but they were more than that even, really, they were city builders. They were um, people who created the institutions that to this day shape modern Houston, including Rice University, which was essentially founded uh, uh, by his grandfather. And, uh, you know, this was an enormous family legacy, although interestingly, it was not a family legacy that said, go be a public servant, quit the opposite. Uh, the family motto was work hard, study hard, and stay out of politics. And basically, this went back to his great-grandfather, uh, who had uh, migrated to Texas from Alabama and was actually friends with Sam Houston. Uh, but his great-grandfather was the only previous known member of this direct family who was in politics in any way. He was an elected judge uh, in, in Texas for one year during the Confederacy. It was a disastrous move from his perspective. Uh, we don't fully understand you know, why that was, but we do know uh, that when uh, 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 Reconstruction came, uh, Judge Baker and all of the other judges were thrown out uh, by the new government. And from then on, the family determined to stay strictly out of politics. And so, you know, it, it actually was a kind of an act of rebellion. And I think that was the interesting thing about Baker. But the truth is, is that obviously, Peter, he never would have been in politics if it weren't for uh, this very uh, 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 unusual friendship forged on the tennis courts at the Houston Country Club. And, you know, uh, obviously George Herbert Walker uh, Bush was, I believe he was a parishioner of, of St. John's at one time. Um, how much do you think, you know, Bush and Baker shaped and influenced each other's careers? Because we've had this sort of conversation and, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a fully answerable question. I mean, my own view uh, is that, you know, Certainly, Jim Baker never would have been in Washington and wouldn't have been in politics at right. all if not for Bush. But what about the other way around? Would Bush have been president if not for James Baker? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it, I think the short answer is probably not. I mean, I think that's a reasonable thing to suppose. Jim Baker, as Susan said, met George H.W. Bush as tennis partners at the Houston Country Club, right? They were not political buddies. Baker wasn't in politics at that point. But Baker was a pretty good tennis player. He'd won multiple singles championships. And so Bush comes to Houston, a young oilman trying to make his way, and also in politics. He wants to, he's a competitor. He's looking for a good doubles partner. Who does he find? He looks and sees, well, this is a this guy Baker is pretty good. And they won two doubles championships uh, two years in a row there and there. And they would still tell you, Bush to this dying day would tell you about those. We interviewed him for this book. Baker today would still tell you about those doubles championships. They're very proud of them. But that's how they met. And that was the friendship that they developed. They had, you know, cocktails at Christmas, you know, touch football at Thanksgiving. It was a family friendship long before politics. And that's what makes this unique, right? If you look back at most secretaries of state and most presidents, they're not personal friends. Sorry, that's our co-author, Ellie. Ellie, who's, uh, who's joining us for our conversation this morning. Um, they're not personal friends. They're, they're usually political allies, sometimes even political rivals, like Obama and Hillary Clinton, in order to knit a party together or what have you. And so they don't have the kind of intimacy that Bush and Baker did. Baker runs all three of Bush's campaigns for president. He's the guy who tells him in 1980 to fold his house, fold his cards when, when he's losing to Reagan, which Bush resists and resents. Uh, and yet it's only your best friend who can tell you to do something like that and have, and, you know, get away with it. There were tensions over at moments. Bush appointed, Dan, you know, picked Dan Quayle to be his running mate and appointed John Sununu as a chief of staff without telling 
Baker, which was seen sometimes as kind of an act of defiance because he hated the idea that Baker was his manager or handler. But broadly speaking, it was this close-knit friendship that made them successful. When you're a Secretary of State and you land in a foreign capital, what the foreign leaders are looking to see is, does the Secretary of State really speak for the president? And a lot of times in recent years, you couldn't necessarily say that. Certainly, I don't think anybody thought anybody spoke for Donald Trump. Uh, even John Kerry, I think, was perceived by people as not necessarily Barack Obama's guy. They couldn't tell for sure if he had his imprimatur. Nobody doubted that about Jim Baker. So he could make deals. He had power. He had sway and influence because of this personal friendship that lasts till the day they die. And I think about this. So again, as, as we just said, they, there were sibling rivalries at times, like brothers. They would, they would fight and they would quarrel. And every once in a while, Bush would say, if you're so smart, how come you're not president? Which at that point, Baker understood, OK, time to dial it back. But on the day Bush dies, is Jim Baker, who shows up at his house, not once, not twice, but three times, checking in on him. And it's Baker who's sitting there, standing there by his bedside as Bush passes away, literally rubbing his feet in those final moments of life. That's a friendship. That's not a political partnership. That's a friendship. And that's distinctive, I think. We, didn't, we haven't seen too much in American life. Um, so Susan, what do you think, though, is, is we need to talk a little bit about Baker in the context of today and today's Republican Party. One thing people were surprised about in our book was to learn that Baker didn't think much of, of Trump and yet voted for him a couple of times. What do you make of that? Well, this was the like running conversation and sort of backdrop to the years we were working on the book was this sort of unexpected rise and, and really, you know, in effect, hostile takeover of the party that, that Baker, although he joined late in life, felt a certain, you know, a sense of, of ownership or, uh, you know, that he was there in sort of the, the foundational moments. Um, you know, the cult of Ronald Reagan uh, uh, had persisted for a long time and Baker as his first chief of staff and, you know, really seen, I think, as a, justifiably as a crucial uh, aspect of many of the successes of Reagan's first term, you know, felt particularly protective, I would say, of that legacy and his own role in it. And so, you know, certainly ideologically, um, you know, Baker was just uh, saw Trump as anathema, really, to um, uh, uh, what he still believed. I mean, you know, and he'll say he was a free trader and um, uh, uh, to this day, he, he was outraged also at a lot of just the sheer you know, kind of incompetence, uh, you know, for the guy whose name is still synonymous with, uh, you know, the effective running uh, of the White House and administration. Mm -hmm. He just found that I, I went to visit with him for the book uh, just a couple, a few weeks into uh, the last administration in sort of late January 2017, early, I think it was late January 2017. And he said to me, he said, you know, Susan, Mexico's not going to pay for that wall. Why does he keep saying that. And, you know, things like that, just, uh, there was just such an incredible disconnect there, uh, both ideologically and in terms of character and temperament. Uh, he actually said very straightforwardly that he thought Trump was nuts, that he was crazy. Uh, you know, he couldn't understand why someone would act, would seek out the role of president and then refuse to act in a way that he saw as presidential. And yet, and yet every single time, uh, you know, Baker, uh, uh, he couldn't quite bring himself to electorally disavow Trump. And I think, you know, Peter and I um, uh, kept asking the question in different ways over and over again. Uh, and we kept getting more or less the same answer, which is I'm terribly uncomfortable with this man. I don't like him. I don't agree with his policies. And yet I'm going to vote for him. And I think this, frankly, ultimately 
we had to sort of take a breath and sit back and we said, okay, if the subject of your biography is telling you something over and over again, you have to listen to him. Uh, and so what it is, what was it that we were hearing? I think, first of all, we were hearing something that explains uh, how it is even possible that Trump uh, would manage to take over a party that didn't agree with him. And, uh, you know, how is it possible for him to have received 70 million uh, votes uh, in the middle of a pandemic, which history is not going to judge his actions well. And so, you know, I think it was that painful sense of like, it's not the party I recognize. In fact, that's what he said the very last time he was willing to speak to us about this. He essentially said, okay, look, uh, I'm still a Republican, even if my party has left me. And, you know, I think there's, there's also a canny enough politician still who recognizes that uh, while, while it may not make that much sense, he's not an owner of uh, what, what the party is right now. And that J Baker's legacy in our book is not essentially, is about his time when he was accountable uh, for actions and decisions of uh, 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 the government. And that's an interesting question, I think, for all of us right now, actually, is the question of, well, how much responsibility does any individual have at this moment in time uh, for what it's easy to beat your chest about and, and lament uh, as the polarization and dysfunction of our politics, but who's willing to be responsible for it and who should be responsible for it? I think to me, that was the set of questions that were that were raised by this. Now, I know hopefully we have a lot of great questions that we wanna to get to from the audience, but Peter, I wanna leave you with uh, you know, a story that I think tells a lot about uh, the essence of Jim Baker, the man, the deal maker, uh, and you know, something that tells us a little bit of something too about uh, his long engagement, long after politics uh, with faith. Uh, he uh, uh, has played an interesting role in the Episcopal church, uh, not just often visiting here at St. John's, but um, I love this story uh, about Baker and his role with the Texas Episcopal Church, because I think it, 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 it tells you something like what you are at the beginning and end of your career in a way is what you really are. And for Jim Baker, that's deal maker. What yeah. was the deal that he made right. for the Episcopals <laughs> in Texas? Yeah. So if you, if you actually wrote a book called Art of the Deal, you actually would think it would be by Jim Baker, because that is what he did. He did. He as, as Susan said, he was instinctively, uh, you know, a, a, a negotiator. He brings together Germany, reunites Germany after the fall of the Berlin Wall. He helps na navigate the end of the Cold War with the fall of the Soviet Union. He brings together the, this coalition that backed America in the first Gulf War, including Syria, including Egypt, including the Soviet Union, right? And by the way, they paid for it. He managed to convince them all to pay for our war in the Middle East, which is rather remarkable. So his natural instinct is to deal make, even after leaving office, even after leaving office, he brings, he's brought back to be the head of the Iraq study group, a five and five, it's kind of like this 9-11 commission thing we're talking about today. They had a bipartisan commission with five members from the Democrats, five members from the Republicans, and they come up with their version of a plan to how to get Iraq war over. And, 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 and it doesn't end up really solving the issue, but it is a 10-0 vote Republicans and Democrats agreeing on something, which might be the last time that happened in Washington. He also did in private life in, in other ways. Like he helped, for instance, negotiate the end of a long fight over the Eisenhower Memorial, which has now just gone up here in Washington. They had a big fight between the family and the artists that lasted for years. Jim Baker brought in, he manages to solve that. And to Susan's point, this is a great one for the St. John's audience is 
the, the, the resistance or the reluctance in the Texas Episcopal Church to the notion of blessing same-sex unions. This is more than 10 years ago now, 2010, I think. And there was this real worry that the Texas church was going to break off from the national church over this issue because, you know, of its, and, and, and Baker is brought in by Bishop Doyle from the Texas church. And what do we do about this? And Baker's instincts immediately go to how do we solve this issue? And his, 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 his solution is let's just give each parish, each different minister, the ability to make the decision whether to, to, to bless unions in their parish. And this, it's this local control that basically settles the issue because it doesn't, it, it leaves it in the hands of the community. I think Baker knew that basically what the people needed who were reluctant and resistant and, and, and uh, was time, right? And his view was it'll, we'll all eventually get there, but let's let people do it on their own pace. And now we, that we avoid the big break and that compromise isn't always satisfying. People on different sides of the issue might take, you know, uh, take a point with that and say, well, that's not very this or that understandable. But in Baker's view, compromise is always better than the big blow up. And what Texas as was facing at that time was the big blow up. And he, he managed to help Bishop Doyle avoid that. So and I by thought the that way, was great... wasn't Texas became was the only state in the South. All the other Southern states uh, had a much more significant rupture, I believe, as a result of it. So anyway, that uh, that's, you know, to, 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 to your uh, 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 to, to Clark now, we, we, you know, we happy to take any questions that people might have. And we're again, delighted to be here today. Susan and Peter, that's a tour de force. Thank you so much. Such a comprehensive review of the book, which I just loved every page of. Thank you so much for that. So I promised the first question to a parishioner who's an old friend of Mr. Baker's actually worked for him in 1979, Jonathan Miller. And he had a number of questions. The one I'll ask is what did Mr. Baker think of the book? <laughs> Well, you never want to speak for your subject, although I suppose you could say for a few hundred pages, we've spoken for our subject. <laughs> um, you know, he's been very generous, obviously. We've done a number of appearances with him uh, in our Zoom book tour uh, and actually got to see him in person uh, just a few weeks ago for the first time since the book came out, uh, which was also the week of his 91st birthday. And let's just say, first of all, that we should all be so in such good shape uh, when we're 91, uh, for sure. Um, you know, Baker is always prepared. Uh, that's part of his motto. And he was well prepared uh, uh, with a line about the book. And he said something to the effect of, well, uh, you know, I said they could do a warts and all biography of me. I just didn't mean all the warts. Uh, <laughs> but the truth is, it's obviously it is, uh, you know, he has a remarkable uh, uh, story to tell and, and a record. And so it's not... Um, uh, let's just say nobody saw it as a, uh, you know, a sort of devastating indictment of him, uh, for sure. But it's it's not an authorized biography either. And I think that's important to note. He was extensively uh, cooperating with us. Dozens of hours we had. We visited with him in uh, Texas and at his home, at his law firm here in Washington. Uh, we went out to Wyoming where he has a, a ranch and in, in many ways is uh, he's as much a Westerner as, as he is a Texan. Um, his entire family, all eight children, uh, his wife, who was a terrific source, uh, uh, of course, of insight and, and observation uh, and reality checking. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, we spoke with, you know, people who served with him in government uh, and in politics, uh, his 106-year-old nanny, uh, uh, who's still around. So, you know, one thing that we found that was really helpful in doing the book was uh, access to his papers at Rice University and also 
at Princeton, uh, uh, which uh, were really a valuable source. This is not a guy who's, uh, you know, put himself on the couch, uh, write a diary kind of a yeah. person. And so I think the fact that he was a pack rat helped to compensate for that a little bit. Um, so again, uh, you know, he has been very generous when he did send us uh, after the, the galleys, a small number of corrections, we were really dreading, you know, opening up this file. What's it going to be? This is the moment where Baker is a famous negotiator. He's going to start to, you know, really get to brass tacks with us. And it was things like, you know, that was not, uh, you know, a, a, a rifle. It was a shotgun, uh, you know, which, by the way, we could use that help. We are definitely not experts on hunting, which is uh, truly one of his big passions in life. So, uh, it was uh, it was a great experience overall, I would say, and he was very generous uh, in uh, what he said about the book. That's great. Mr. Baker wrote two books, as I understand it, one about his foreign policy um, experience, and it was titled The Politics of Diplomacy. Is that really, do you think, the essence of why he was so successful as a diplomat, because he had a politician's feel? Yeah, I think he brought a politician's feel to it. As Susan said, he wasn't a geopolitical strategist. He wasn't Henry Kissinger. He didn't have an art, overarching theory about how the world was supposed to work. He came at it from, a, the, the, again, like a dealmaker's perspective, a politician's perspective, like, what can I get done? And David Gergen told us, that, you know, basically Baker divided the world into three sets of problems, right? There were the unresolvable problems, the impossible problems you couldn't you couldn't fix. So you avoid those because there's no point in banging your head against the wall, even if they're important. They're the easy problems that there are to fix. And those you pass off to staff because there's no point in wasting your time with that. And then the ones that he focused on were the really hard but doable ones, right? And he brought the politician's perspective to that. And I think that the title of his book, though, is also kind of a concession to his own internal discomfort. He wanted to be remembered as a statesman. He hated the fact that he was always seen as a handler. Even though he'd run five presidential campaigns, he wanted to be a principal. He didn't just want to be the guy behind the scenes. When Time Magazine ran a cover story and referred to him as a handler, he hated it. Uh, so when Bush, in fact, brought him back from the State Department in 1992 to run his re-election campaign, which failed, Baker hated it, just didn't want to do it. So I think that the politics of diplomacy, using that as a title, was a concession in his way to the, to the reality which he had denied which is of course he's a political handler as well as a statesman. And that these two things were married together and that was his out, outlook in the world. And just to talk more about that, the, many people in Bush's inner circle, including I think it's fair to say members of the family were disappointed in him for his reluctance to go back to the White House and to run the campaign in 1992. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, Clark, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that that was really a key moment. It was a testing point, absolutely, uh, in his, his relations with the Bush family. And I think in his own reckoning uh, with, this, with this kind of remarkable career in Washington, which comes to an end on a very sour note, actually, right? You know, the, the 92 campaign, uh, you know, if they had visions of Jim Baker riding to the rescue, it wasn't going to happen. I think that in part his reluctance was he didn't want to be sucked back into the world of politics, partially, you know, being secretary of state when the Soviet Union is collapsing and the world is literally uh, changing day by day. And it's, you know, there's a palpable sense that this is one of those hinge moments of history. Who wants to go back and approve attack ads 
uh, you know, when you could be constructing a new international order, right? So that would be understandable regardless. I also think that he understood that Bush was going to lose or that there was a, a pretty good chance that Bush was going to lose. And up until then, one of the things that had characterized Baker's career in Washington was a remarkable ability to be associated with successes and somewhere nowhere to be found uh, in the failures. Iran-Contra, of course, being the, the most notable example in the Reagan administration. Uh, you know, in fact, he, many people, including Nancy Reagan, wrote in her memoir that she believed that, uh, you know, Iran-Contra wouldn't have happened and almost sink the Reagan presidency had Baker remained uh, as White House chief of staff. And so when you look at that 92 campaign, right, all those things are going around. He doesn't want to be pulled out of the State Department. In fact, in our book, we point out that he was even desperately trying to drum up a last minute uh, Middle East peace breakthrough in order to avoid what he saw as this kind of, you know, death sentence for his, his tenure as a diplomat and his, his, his advisors reluctantly telling him, you know, sorry, Mr. Secretary, it's, it's not going to work. Uh, it's not going to happen. And so he goes back to the White House, but he's also oddly detached really uh, from uh, the baker that most people knew, you know, who was an extreme, uh, you know, detail-oriented manager on top of everything. And then in this campaign, it was all different. Uh, and uh, even his own advisors uh, were worried about him. He seemed depressed. Uh, he wasn't showing up to meetings or deferring to others. And uh, when the defeat did come, I would say that it was, um, you know, a, a source of real heartbreak and resentment, uh, in particular, Barbara Bush, George W. Bush, they, they, they did uh, uh, feel that Baker really hadn't been there in some ways for the family. Part of the rest of the secret sauce for Mr. Baker was his ability to cultivate relationships with people like you, with Washington journalists. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, there's no question about that, that he was one of those, uh, you know, people in Washington that you see from time to time who really understand how to work the media. And that's and, and why that can be important. You know, it's, it's interesting. He, he didn't have any illusions about the reporters. He was a Republican and figured most of them were liberal. But even if they were liberal, he figured out he, he could work with them. And that what they really cared about wasn't policy or ideology. What they cared about was a story. What could they write that they that the other guys didn't have? And so he was masterful of that. He you know, he, if Sam Donaldson called the office around six o'clock looking for a last minute fresh bit for the evening news, you know, Baker would have something for him. He'd say, tell him, blah, 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 you know, and it would give him something that would feed the beast. He, he spent Friday afternoons with the three news magazines, you know, Time, Newsweek, and U.S. News, because that was their deadline. And he fed them the sort of insider morsels that really animate those particular kind of stories that they did. Uh, you know, Larry Speaks, who was the White House press secretary or de deputy press secretary, but acting press secretary through most of the tenure, said that he thought Baker spent about 50 percent of his time with the press. Now, that's probably an exaggeration, but it is true that he would not go home any night without having returned every reporter phone call and every congressperson's phone call as well. Sometimes, of course, he returned them too late for deadline and he would do that on purpose, but he did make a point of reaching out. And I think that he understood that engagement with the press rather than open hostility with the press was just a better, uh, you know, a better modus operandi. But he didn't lie. I mean, he didn't always tell them everything. And, you know, if you asked, which we did, a lot of people around town, including members who were parishioners of your, of your church there, uh, you know, I'm thinking about you, Ann Compton, you know, if you ask members of the press corps from that era, 
like Lou Cannon, David Hoffman, uh, Andrew Mitchell, uh, people who dealt with him day in, day out, they would all tell you he never lied to me. And that was super important. And that's not always the case in Washington. Indeed so. Well, of course, the relationship with Bush was seminal, but to talk about another relationship, can you talk a bit about his relationship with Nancy Reagan? Mm. And also the, you know, the old saw has been that really during the Reagan presidency, the de facto president was Jim Baker. Mm. Can you talk a little well, bit about that? Look, Jim Baker, one of his great skills, obviously, is an innate ability to read the power map of, uh, you know, uh, any world he found himself in. And, uh, you know, you couldn't read the Reagan uh, world without understanding that Nancy Reagan was uh, the big power and that if you didn't have her support, uh, you a, a weren't likely to last long and B, it wasn't going to go well for you. And, you know, the thing that people maybe don't remember as much about Baker was that he was a complete outsider to uh, Reagan world. And in fact, not only was he an outsider, but he was uh, a hostile force and had run uh, not one, but two presidential campaigns against Ronald Reagan, uh, including in 1980 when he ran Bush's campaign. Uh, and for Baker to be sort of invited, not only into the inner circle of Reagan world, but given arguably the most important job in Reagan's new administration was really just a breathtaking decision. Uh, you know, as with a lot of things, it probably had its roots in the uh, uh, enormous infighting around Ronald Reagan, uh, which really was uh, a pretty remarkable and, you know, kind of toxic thing. I mean, this was a battleground, it, you know, when the book first came out, in fact, Peter got a text from, uh, you know, a, a former very senior Trump administration official saying, hey, you know, that Reagan White House, it sounds an awful lot like our White House, except, uh, you know, that it was competent. Uh, and of course, a lot of the uh, reason for that was Jim Baker. Uh, he, every single day, uh, uh, he was in the White House. Uh, one of his rivals said he gained power uh, and the other faction lost it. And uh, that couldn't have been possible without Nancy Reagan from the very beginning. Uh, I think she was a supporter of his. She uh, uh, certainly had a sense that Baker seemed like her idea of what uh, a distinguished Washington uh, gentleman and uh, chief of staff would look like. He was always impeccably dressed in a pinstripe suit and monogrammed shirts. Uh, but he also uh, understood, again, the Karen feeding. And, you know, he was capable, by the way, of averting his gaze uh, from that which might have troubled that relationship. And there's a great moment in the book where uh, his longtime close advisor, Margaret Tutwiler, who went with him to many of these different uh, important roles throughout the Reagan and Bush years, uh, she finds out about Nancy Reagan's famous consultations with the astrologer, you know, soon to become, of course, a huge scandal. Uh, and he essentially says, oh yeah, don't talk to me about that. You know, go see, uh, <laughs> who was it? Um, I think it's she was asking why yeah. some, some schedule change that was very mysterious had been made. She's like, I don't understand why that. He says, you go ask Steve or you'll find out. Yeah. And she comes back and says, really? This yeah. is a strong, but, but Baker, he didn't challenge it. That's yeah. the point. Baker that, like adapts to the environment in which he's in and makes the most of it rather than fighting the reality he finds. Well, final question. You, you mentioned one of the things I wanted to talk about. And that is that touching scene toward the end of president, literally at the end of president Bush's life. I also wanted to talk about a lasting uh, monument to Bush and Baker at Houston. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's interesting. With Baker in Houston one time asking him, drive us around Jim Baker's Houston, right? Like this is the place his, again, Susan said his 
great grandfather, grandfather, and father basically helped build. He had spent his whole life there except for his time in Washington. So he drives us and shows us his, you know, where he lived as a young boy, the school he went to, his offices, and all this kind of thing. And we also got to see these uh, two statues, which are set up uh, across a park in Houston. There's George H.W. Bush on one side of the park, uh, and on the other side of the park is Jim Baker looking at George Bush, a little below him, not the same quite level, but across the park, these two men basically are looking at each other. And I thought that was such a remarkable thing. I can't think of an exact uh, uh, duplicate of it anywhere, except maybe the, 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 the two Bushes uh, are, are represented together as a statue at the George W. Bush Presidential Library. But where, when in history do you see these two significant figures, you know, uh, who were such an important part of each other's lives depicted in such a way? And that those monuments, that park, uh, in Houston, I think, you know, reflects partnership that we've never seen, you know, very rarely seen in American history. Peter Baker, Susan Glasser, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, I highly commend this book to you, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you so much, Clark. Clark, it's wonderful to be with you and with everyone. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Same to you. Thank you. <laughs>